right, we are continuing here with Daniel chapter 2. If you'll turn there in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, page 738 to 739, if you're using the Bibles here at the church. We're going to start at verse 24. We began this section of Daniel last week. We looked at the first half of the chapter. So if you missed that, you might go online and listen to it later today. So we looked at the first half of the chapter, and we'll be finishing it up. Um, just to review, we have here, Daniel and his friends are exiles in the city of Babylon, and the great king Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He's very disturbed by this dream, so he gets all his experts together. They, uh, he wants them to tell him both the dream and the interpretation he turns out he's a bit of a paranoid guy. He's a little unstable. They can't do that. They say only the gods can do that. And so he decides to execute all his wise men. Daniel is, of course, one of the wise men. And so that's a problem, Daniel and his friends. And so he uh, gains some time and he tells his friends, let's pray to the Lord for mercy. They pray to the Lord for mercy and the Lord reveals the dream and the interpretation to Daniel. Daniel stops and he praises the Lord and he thanks him for that revelation. And that's where we stopped last week. We saw his prayer there in verses 20 to 23. So we pick up at verse 24. <clears throat> Before we read that, let me open us with prayer. Father God, we pray thanking you that you came down, you took on flesh. And you saved us from our sin. You revealed to us yourself in the way that we could be saved. We thank you, Lord, for the revelation of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would guide us this morning as we seek to worship him, to honor him. We pray you'd bless this, our reading of your word, and the application of it to our hearts and lives by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Daniel chapter 2, beginning at verse 24. <clears throat> Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went, and he said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. And the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. 
You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. All right. So there comes a point in many love stories where the main character takes their relationship public, so to speak. Uh, they publicly declare their love some, for someone, all right? So you, maybe you've seen like these YouTube videos of 
proposals at baseball games or big events, or maybe, you know, the, a couple of years back there was even something called promposals, where teenagers would kind of make a big deal about asking someone to go to the prom with them, and of course it always had to be public in some way. You take a video of it and show people. Uh, or maybe there's, you remember Will Ferrell in the Christmas movie Elf, crying out at his dad's big city law practice, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. A uh, more sober declaration comes in the final scene of Lloyd Austin's book, The Robe. Maybe some of you have read that. It tells the fictional story of the centurion who executed Jesus. Uh, and in the, the final scene of the book, he declares his allegiance to Jesus in front of the Roman emperor who condemns him to death for his commitment. In our sermon text for today, Daniel also makes this move from private to public commitment. Uh, those of you who were here last week will remember how the climax of this story was Daniel's prayer of praise and thanksgiving to God, right? But it was, it was private. Well, here in this section, God's praise breaks out into the open as first Daniel and eventually Nebuchadnezzar praise the Lord. They're driven to praise by a revelation of God's kingdom. And so this morning, we also want to be led to praise by this vision of God's victorious kingdom. So, moving through the text, my first point will be Daniel gives God the credit. Daniel gives God the credit. On a hot day, somewhere in the Sinai desert, desert many years ago, the people of Israel wandered and they moaned as they did about not having any water. And God, uh, if you remember this story, he tells Moses and Aaron to go up and speak to this rock and water would flow out. But Moses is pretty worked up. He climbs up to the rock. He cries out in anger, Here now, you rebels! Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And he strikes the rock twice. It's not fun to repeat people's low moments, but the Bible records this event for a reason. Moses, referred to in the Bible as the humblest man on earth, he speaks in anger. Right? He disobeys God by hitting the rock instead of just speaking to it. And he claims the glory for something that God was doing for his people. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock, he says? This should be a familiar weakness for all of us because we are hungry to boast. Our tendency is to squirm out of as much responsibility as we can for the bad things and to claim as much responsibility for the good things as we possibly can. Right? This is exactly what Arioch does in our text. Verse 25. I found this guy for you, Nebuchadnezzar. No, no, you didn't. You were trying to kill Daniel and his friends. Uh, Arioch displays what would seem to be one of the cardinal rules of our world, right? Never miss an opportunity to self-promote. You have been trained and shaped to follow that rule. 
We walk around with this imaginary chart of how important we are in our heads. And we're always thinking that people think we're lower on the chart than we really are. And so we self-promote, you know, just, to, just so they understand the truth of how big a deal we are. Ariok's example of self-promotion is here to give us a contrast with Daniel. Uh, did you notice, right, how intentional he is to make sure God gets the credit? In verse 25, Ariok says, this guy can do it. And of course, he could say, yeah, I can. And the king asks him uh, in verse 26, but Daniel says, no, I can't. Nobody can, actually. He, he puts all the categories out there. Nobody can do it. Magicians, astrologers, nobody. Only God can. And then he clarifies again in verse 30. I mean, it's totally unnecessary for him to do this, but he does it to make sure people understand. This mystery has not been revealed to me because I'm wiser than everybody else. How is Daniel able to be so humble? Well, in his book, uh, J-Curve, Paul Miller tells the story of being in a conversation with some co-workers that he's, you know, they're talking about this project that they've been working on, and he sort of realizes, you know, I'm not sure these guys remember that I actually came up with this idea for this project. At least, you know, they haven't mentioned it yet in this conversation. So, you know, on the chart of how important we are, Miller thinks their view of him is just a little bit too low at this point. And all it would take was him to just quickly throw in a little bow somewhere. It doesn't have to be obvious, right? It could be simple as, you know, when I originally came up with this idea, I was thinking, etc. cetera. Uh, just, just a little reminder, right? Is this familiar to any of you? Well, as he's coming up with this bow, something about it didn't feel right, so he ended up staying silent. The meeting ended. His coworkers walked out, and he was left with this sense of despair and loneliness. He felt unbelievably empty, sort of like he was just disappearing. He picked up his Bible, and he read Jesus' words in John 6, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. For my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Miller writes, As I read, I was overcome with an enormous hunger for Christ. My desire to boast seemed distant, out of place. Something new was drawing me. I felt strangely full. What's happening? He's replacing dependence on self, which requires constant self-promotion to maintain, because it's not true, with dependence on God through Christ. See, I think this is exactly what we see with Daniel here. What did we see last week? God gives him the solution to saving his friends, but what does he do first? He stops, he praises God, he feeds on the Lord and his greatness, he affirms his full dependence on God so that when he turns back to the world, he has no need to self-promote. He doesn't need the quick sugar hit of the empty boast. He's already full. In light of what he just said about God in verses 20 to 23, his self-promotion would be fictional. 
And notice also that this leads Daniel away from any sort of flattery or fear in his conversation with Nebuchadnezzar. First, in verses 27 to 28, he repeats exactly what had made Nebuchadnezzar so mad earlier. People can't do what you want. Only God can, right? Surely he knows that is what led Nebuchadnezzar to give his order of execution. But he says it because it's true. He takes another bold step in verse 37 where he tells Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom and your power have all been given to you by God, by my God. He, he goes on in verse 38, all the people, the animals, the birds that you rule have been given into your hand by God. You may not have noticed how gutsy that comment was when we read it earlier. Remember what we learned about Nebuchadnezzar last week. This is a guy full of insecurity, paranoia. You say the wrong thing, and hostility explodes out of him. But Daniel is not controlled by these things. What is he controlled by? He's controlled by an overwhelming desire to promote God, not self. And what better way to do that than by speaking about God's kingdom? And so we turn to my second point, God's victorious kingdom revealed. So Daniel finally reveals to us this dream that had troubled Nebuchadnezzar so much. It's a dream about a giant statue made of various types of metal. We're told its appearance is frightening. Uh, the statue is destroyed by a stone that grows to become a great mountain and fills the whole earth. It, it's actually a pretty simple dream. When you boil it down, you have something man-made that is divided into parts, and then you have something that is not man-made that utterly destroys the man-made thing, and then over time becomes the only thing left. Uh, you can see why this would be a scary dream to a king who didn't know what it meant, right? You've got power, destruction, victory, absolute dominion. Who are the primary actors? What's going on here? Well, Daniel gives an interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, and then each succeeding section of metal in the statue is another kingdom that seems to fall chronologically after the previous one. They're all part of the statue because they're all human kingdoms, right? They're man-made. And then, and then, of course, the stone is this kingdom that God will set up that will be victorious. And so this dream is giving Nebuchadnezzar a picture of the future that really focuses on and, and, and highlights God's victory, God's dominion over the world. And of course, at, you know, at this point, a lot of people want to identify these kingdoms, right? We gotta, let's figure it out. Let's do all the work historically. Which one is which? And uh, so, you know, traditionally, right, the, if the golden head is Babylon that Daniel identifies for us, then perhaps the silver kingdom would be the Medo-Persian Empire, the bronze kingdom, the Greek Empire of Alexander the Great. The iron would be, uh, you know, that becomes a mix of iron and clay would be the Roman Empire, And there are some good reasons. Other commentators will go a slightly different direction with this. But there are some good reasons for identifying these kingdoms. And we could talk about this if we wanted to. But I'm not actually that interested in going down that road with you. Because 
the mystery that God chooses to reveal to Nebuchadnezzar is not actually the exact identification of these kingdoms. Only one is identified. We really would just be speculating. I think it's better for us to focus on the clear lessons given to us in this dream. We do have an interpretation. So what details does Daniel think we should notice in his interpretation of the dream? Well, first, none of these metallic kingdoms last. They don't last. They are temporal. I know it's obvious, but we need to pay attention to this. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar in verse 38, you're the head of gold, and then he goes on in verse 38 to say, another kingdom will arise after you. In other words, your kingdom will end. It will die. It's not a surprise. We know this truth, but do we live like this? We humans, we want to make something that will last. We want a legacy. Uh, maybe you had to memorize Percy Shelley's poem, Ozymandias, as a child. I did. I don't know about you. It tells the story of a traveler who finds the remains of a great statue in the desert. It's just two legs left. Uh, the pedestal reads, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Around the statue, there's nothing left. There's no great works. It's just sand as far as the eye can see. We know this. So why do we invest so much in our personal kingdoms? Are we just spending our lives polishing the statue? Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Hebrews 13, 14. Make sure your understanding of history is actually the Christian way of understanding history. The only eternal kingdom in this dream is the kingdom of God. Verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. The citizens always have that kingdom too. That is a kingdom to invest in. That's where your ultimate loyalty should lie. The second thing we see about these earthly kingdoms is how they actually decline in glory and unity. They get, they get stronger, but uh, less beautiful and more brittle even at the very end. Again, this is, this is something Daniel actually points out in his interpretation so we're meant to see this. We're not just spinning things out from the dream every direction we possibly can. Uh, he notes in verse 39 that the kingdom after Nebuchadnezzar's will be inferior to his. And we note in the dream they go from gold to silver to bronze to iron to iron mixed with clay. These materials are stronger, more, perhaps more enduring, uh, but not more beautiful not more valuable. In fact, there's an indication that, at least by the final kingdom, there's even less unity. There's division. Daniel spends a bunch of time on this in his interpretation. Three verses discussing the meaning of the mixed iron and clay. He even indicates, verse 43, that there's this attempt to unite the iron and the clay. He uses the word marriage to refer to this. 
Uh, we don't know if he's referring to some sort of specific attempt to unify people or a bunch of general series of efforts, but the point is clear. It doesn't work. That's the point. It doesn't work. They can't unify the kingdoms of the world, the peoples of the world. They cannot defeat the curse of Babel. People divide. Only God's kingdom truly unites it is a universal kingdom made up of people from all sorts of places. Ephesians 1, 9-10 states, God's plan is to unite all things in Christ. The image of a rock, right? That's an image of unity. A rock is not made up of parts like the statue. You don't mix lots of rocks together and get a bigger rock. It's a unity. And of course, Christ is referred to as a rock, the cornerstone. Luke 20, uh, verses 17 to 18. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Which brings us to a final point we should notice. This is a supernatural kingdom. This rock, this kingdom of God is supernatural. It is divine. It is not earthly like the kingdoms made up of, that the statue is made up of. Uh, this dream does not describe an earthly kingdom that sort of develops into God's kingdom. There's no transformation of the world kingdoms here. The image is catastrophic, right? The statue will be utterly destroyed, not remade, not reformed, not transformed. They will be crushed and blow away like chaff so that not a trace of them can be found. Uh, you know, the United States will not become God's kingdom. Uh, the nation of Israel will not become God's kingdom. It's not a political statement. It's not unpatriotic to say that. This is just, what does Scripture communicate to us here about God's kingdom? You know, in another 40 years the most Christian nation in the world could be China, the primary geopolitical enemy of the United States. I read a recent study by Boston University that estimated that in the last 40 years, the number of Christians in China rose from 1 million to 100 million. Now, what do you do with that if you're linking God's kingdom to a specific earthly kingdom? Now, of course, we have, we have responsibilities to the earthly kingdoms we're citizens of. We'll talk about that in a few moments. But the point with this stone that is cut out by no human hand, mentioned both in the dream and the interpretation, is that it brings to an end the kingdoms of man. It is exclusively supernatural. It is distinct from the statue. A totally different substance. It takes no partners. It allows for no competitors. At the end, it will be the only reality left. Now, the Reformation Study Bible puts it this way. God will one day eliminate the disparity between his throne room and the earth. In his throne room, everyone worships God. The earth is full of rebellion. When the kingdom of God has fully come, the earth will become his throne room. 
So where do we see this kingdom growing now on earth? Well, what happens in God's throne room? Worship. Wherever we see God worshiped in people's lives, their priorities, their choices, their loves, we see the kingdom. And this is actually what we see in this final part of our text. So we turn to my third point. Nebuchadnezzar gives God the credit. Uh, we, we began by seeing how, you know, Daniel's private worship from last week's text flows out into this public praise before Nebuchadnezzar and all his, his court. Daniel gave God the credit. But now we see that as God's victorious kingdom is revealed to Nebuchadnezzar, he also worships God. He sees God is worthy of worship. Now, he doesn't do it exactly the way we might want. It, it might have raised a few eyebrows when we read that he fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. Right? We're, we're thinking, hold on a second there, Neb. Didn't you listen to Daniel when he made it clear that this, ha- this doesn't have to do with him? But... Uh, Let's remember first that Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan. He has not taken the rules and principles of worshiping the true God 101. He doesn't have the OPC's directory for public worship. He's just doing what he knows how to do. Uh, Also notice what he actually says in verse 47. He says, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. In other words, he... He did get Daniel's message. He recognizes that Daniel is only able to reveal his dream because of the greatness of his God. He he doesn't seem confused about Daniel himself being a God. Rather, he views Daniel as a representative of this great God. And so not knowing how to worship this God, I think what we see here is him trying to worship God through his representative. He doesn't quite have things right, and I don't think we're seeing converted, a converted Nebuchadnezzar here. By the way, I think this is a polytheistic Nebuchadnezzar. He's impressed by Daniel's God. Daniel's God has made his way to the top of his list. Maybe just below himself, of course. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar still has a lot of humbling to go. What about you? Do you have a lot of humbling to go? Are you ready to give the credit to God? The right representative of God to worship is not Daniel, but Christ. Daniel stands in as a prophet here, and by the grace of God, he does a pretty good job. But the true prophet, the one who truly reveals God, is Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. All the fullness of God dwells in him. All that is God's belongs to Christ. And all that is Christ, he sends his spirit to declare to us so that his glory might be revealed to us. And at its revelation, we might bow down to worship. Christian, you live in a position of great tension because you live in an earthly kingdom at the same time that you are a citizen of God's kingdom. Just like, you know, Daniel and his friends here at the end, they're promoted and they faithfully serve this head of gold. You also are called to seek the welfare 
of the nation that you find yourself in. But how do you maintain your dual citizenship? Well, Daniel shows us the key is the absolute priority of God's worship in all that you do. Even as he serves Nebuchadnezzar as a wise man in this text, what is he doing? He exalts the Lord. He lifts him up. This is exactly what Paul meant when he wrote in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, in word, in deed, do everything in the name of Jesus Christ. If you make the promotion of Christ's glory the reigning desire of your life, you will never have to compromise your citizenship in God's kingdom. You will be a blessing to your earthly kingdom, like Daniel and his friends. They're a blessing there in Babylon. And you can believe and trust that Jesus will give you the strength you need to continue until the only reality left is the victorious kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kingdom, for this revelation of your kingdom we have in this text, this picture of a great mountain that begins as a stone. We know that the stone is Christ. We, Lord, are made part of your kingdom through our trust in Christ. And so we claim our Savior this morning and we ask for strength to live for his glory, to make that our desire, Lord, to promote Christ in our lives. And we pray this in his name. Amen.